Hello, my name is Andrew Pollard. Welcome to our podcast series, The Oxford Colloquy, bringing the facts, stories and people behind the science. On this podcast, we'll be talking with Dame Sarah Gilbert and hearing how she had all of the tools ready for the pandemic vaccine because of the work that she'd been doing on influenza viruses and on other coronaviruses to make vaccines before the pandemic started in 2020. She also tells us about working in the university in a unique situation where the laboratories where vaccines are designed sit alongside a manufacturing facility and the clinical trial setup, which allows the evaluation in human volunteers to be undertaken of new vaccines. Dame Sarah Gilbert, Fellow of the Royal Society and Professor of Vaccinology at the University of Oxford, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. So, Sarah, we have worked together on the COVID-19 vaccine, but actually, really, I know you more as a flu vaccine person before the pandemic. So I'd be very interested to understand how you ended up with coronaviruses and given your past work on flu. Well, I originally came to Oxford University quite a long time ago to work on the genetics of host-parasite interactions in malaria, which doesn't have anything at all to do with coronaviruses. So that's the genes in the human as well as in the malaria parasite. That's right. That's that's looking at how different genes in humans interacted with different genes in the malaria parasite and how one might influence which infections people got. So nothing to do with vaccines, nothing to do with viruses. But that's how I started out in Oxford. But that work led to some interesting findings which pointed towards a particular type of immune response being protective against malaria infections. Um, So not antibodies that we've been talking about such a lot with coronavirus, but the other major arm of the um, immune response that changes when we get infections, so T-cell responses. And that information led to thoughts about designing vaccines Um, against malaria that work by inducing that particular type of immune response and how to best do that safely in people. And from there, I started working on different ways of making vaccines, which we initially tested um, with Adrian Hill, who was leading the project. We initially tested these vaccines to induce immune responses against malaria. Malaria is a huge cellular organism, very different from viruses. So how how did you get from uh, an interest in malaria to viruses and particularly influenza? Well, the link was the the technology that we were using to make the vaccines. So there are lots of different ways you can make vaccines, but the way we were working on was to use what we call viral vectors. So that's a vaccine which is derived from an existing virus that has been modified and made safe so that it no longer causes disease. But we can use that modified virus, which we then call uh, a viral vector, to add in the genes from another organism that can cause a disease and induce an immune response against that. But it's very adaptable because you can use those type of technologies to make vaccines against whatever pathogen you choose, whether it's um, malaria, a bacterium or a virus, uh, we can use the technology to make vaccines against all of them. So where where do these um, adenoviruses come from that you make viral vectors out of? Well, it's not just adenoviruses. It was um, 
pox viruses as well were the main ones that we started with firstly. Um, and pox viruses are um, derived from the smallpox vaccine that um, Edward Jenner first introduced um, a very long time ago. So it goes back to the very beginning of vac vaccinology. And we have so that, that that was back in 1796 when Edward Jenner um, first uh, tried out um, a smallpox vaccine, which actually was made from a pox virus that affects cows rather than humans. Yes. Um, and he didn't understand exactly what it was that he was using, but um, it clearly worked. And over time, that smallpox vaccine was actually passaged from one person to another. It was used directly to um, inoculate somebody from the arm of somebody who'd previously been inoculated. And over time, what we ended up with was a virus called vaccinia virus, which was the smallpox vaccine that we were using in the last century. Um, and then there were safer versions of that vaccinia virus produced. And I worked with one called modified vaccinia virus Ankara or MVA. And that had been uh, modified so that although it could infect cells in the human body, it didn't then spread through the body. So it's what we call replication deficient. It can get inside the body, but it can't spread once it gets there. It doesn't pass to anybody else, but it doesn't move into other cells in the body after the first cell that it finds. So that's the the principle of um, a safe viral vector that we can then add other genes into. But as you said, the other main type of viral vector that we use is adenoviruses. So there are lots and lots of different adenoviruses. They infect humans, they infect lots of other species. Um, most mammals will have adenoviruses that have been found to infect them. And generally they cause fairly mild infections in the nose and the throat. Um, so they give us a cold. So sometimes when we've got what we call a common cold, it's been uh, caused by an adenovirus infection. We get infected with them throughout life. There are lots of different um, versions of them. And we actually started making our vaccine from one that was originally isolated from a chimpanzee. So very, very similar to the adenoviruses that normally infect humans, um, but not one that normally circulates in humans. So uh, are we not immune to these adenoviruses if, if we've had them throughout our lives? If we've had um, infections with the with a human adenovirus, um, particularly the common ones, we can detect antibodies to them that mean that if you then use exactly that same adenovirus to make a vaccine, it has some impact on reducing uh, the immune response induced by that vaccine. So that's because of what we call anti-vector immunity. Um, somebody's already had an infection with that adenovirus, it reduces the, the immune response you get if you're immunised with a vaccine made from it. But because we use an adenovirus that normally doesn't circulate in humans, people don't have strong immune responses against this particular vaccine vector, so we don't get the same problem. And then when we vaccinate somebody with our viral vector derived from an adenovirus, because it doesn't spread through the body, um, it doesn't induce a very strong immune response against itself. So we don't get strong immunity against the vaccine vector. OK, so you've uh, tried this out using malaria. And as you said, then you've got a, a platform technology using viral vectors. And uh, so what made you then move to influenza as, a, as another uh, type of virus or another type of disease um, that you thought this might be a, a useful technology to use for? So I'd been using the viral vectors to induce T-cell responses against malaria. 
And we know that T cell responses against flu um, are important in protection. And there are lots of different flu viruses out there, many of them in avian species, in birds, uh, birds that fly around the world and that sometimes infect mammals and sometimes humans get infected. And they all have very different proteins on the surface of the virus. Um, normally, when we have our um, seasonal flu vaccines, it's all based on those surface proteins of the virus, and they change a lot between different viruses. So if you know exactly which flu virus is going to cause the next infection, you can make a, a, an effective vaccine against it. But if you don't know which of the many different flu viruses that are out there might be the one to cause the next infection, another approach is to um, make a vaccine that works against the proteins on the inside of the virus because they really don't change very much between all these different viruses. And because they're on the inside of the virus, they can't be reached by antibodies from our immune system when the virus gets in, into the nose or into the throat. But once the virus gets inside a cell, it's vulnerable to T cell responses, if they exist, that can recognise the flu virus. So that's what we're trying to um, do with these broadly cross-reactive flu vaccines to have something that will be protective against all of the different flu viruses that are out there, even when we don't know what's coming next. So is that work still ongoing or have you moved completely over to coronaviruses now? That work's still ongoing. Um, we are looking at combining different aspects of the influenza virus into a vaccine um, so that we get antibodies as well as T cell responses against different parts of the flu virus. And we're looking at delivering that vaccine into the nose or into the lungs as opposed to into the muscle because flu um, is a disease that infects the respiratory tract and we think that we might get more protective immune responses if we immunise into the respiratory tract. So that work never stopped but um, along with working on flu viruses because we have a platform technology um, I got interested in other viruses that can cause outbreaks or could at some point cause a pandemic. So I started working on developing vaccines against three different viruses, Nipah virus, Lassa fever virus and MERS coronavirus. So the MERS coronavirus is a virus which had about 10 years ago um, caused some small outbreaks which uh, was thought to have been transmitted from camels uh, but with a very high mortality. So that I guess that's what drove the interest in MERS coronavirus. So how far had that work gone using the viral vectors? So with that vaccine development programme, we'd already carried out two clinical trials with the vaccine. Uh, one of them was in Oxford and one of them was in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. And the reason for going to Saudi Arabia is that that is where most of the MERS cases have been historically. There have been quite a few outbreaks of MERS coronavirus in hospitals in Saudi Arabia, in and around Riyadh. Um, it's a disease that once it gets into hospitals can spread very quickly um, in the population there. So people who are hospitalized for, for some other reason may be vulnerable to other infections. And we also know that healthcare workers, people working in the hospital, can get a MERS infection from infected patients. And the healthcare workers might not be seriously ill themselves, they just have a cold or very mild symptoms, but then they can carry the virus with them and infect other people in the hospital. So once the, the virus starts to cause an outbreak in a hospital, it can become quite large quite quickly. 
Okay, that work has moved into development of MERS coronavirus vaccines. But really, I guess in a timely way, that work was happening just as the COVID-19 virus appeared in at the end of 2019. When did you first hear about the new coronavirus, COVID-19, or SARS-CoV-2, as it was better known at the time? I was following what was happening with reported cases of pneumonia in China uh, at the very beginning of 2020. I think from the first day of 2020, I happened to notice some of these reports. And at that stage, there weren't very many people infected and it wasn't known what the virus causing the infection was or indeed if it was a virus. Um, it was still very early, but it, it looked interesting enough to be reported. And so I started following the story over the next few days and gradually more information emerged that um, it wasn't influenza and it wasn't an adenovirus. So there are two other viruses that could have been the cause of pneumonia, but it wasn't then. Um, and then it was found that it was a coronavirus and people were very worried about SARS coronavirus. So that's a severe acute respiratory virus that caused an outbreak um, in that part of the world some years ago. Um, and that outbreak was contained. It didn't become a pandemic. But then the news came that the new virus had been sequenced and it wasn't the original SARS virus. It was a different coronavirus, which eventually came to be known as SARS-CoV-2. And you were following this right from the beginning of January. But I think in the media, there was almost no interest until the second week in January that this virus was causing problems in Wuhan in China. But even then, the media reporting was pretty muted. And I certainly remember a headline in the New York Times on the 11th of January, which said that this virus doesn't appear to spread between humans. Yes, that's true. I think that was perhaps based on a report that there was no hard evidence that it spreads between humans rather than um, knowing that it definitely didn't. But um, sometimes interpretation of these reports um, can be a little different when they get reported in newspapers. That may have been what happened there. I've been working on diseases that cause outbreaks and pandemics for some time by the beginning of 2020. So flu, we're always expecting the next pandemic is going to be flu it's happened several times every century as far back as we can tell um it, it will happen again in the future uh and then i've been working on other viruses that cause outbreaks that sometimes can spread into large outbreaks if not a pandemic so if you like i was sensitized to news of a new outbreak very much aware that this might fizzle out and become nothing um but also aware that it might be something that started to spread and could spread quite quickly and we had technology that was suitable for making a vaccine against this novel virus and speed is of the essence. So it didn't seem to be a sensible approach to wait and see how things panned out and decide later on if it might be something worth working on. Um, the discussions I was having with, with the people that I worked with very closely at that time were, well, we should start as soon as we possibly can and we'll keep going until we know that we don't actually need this vaccine. So at that time, um, it, it, I guess people weren't aware that it was likely to become a pandemic. It was perhaps more like thinking it would be like the previous two coronavirus outbreaks you've described, one about 20 years ago and one about 10 years ago, which did seem to be contained just using isolation of the cases. But here, because you had the technology, there was the potential to intervene if it were to spread. Yes, I, I certainly wouldn't have said at the beginning of 2020 that we recognised this was going to be a pandemic. That wasn't the case at all. We recognised there was some potential for a large outbreak or a pandemic, and then speed is needed. 
But on the other hand, fully expected that we could have started to develop the vaccine and, and generated a little bit of data and then found out that we didn't need it. But at least we would have had the opportunity to demonstrate with a truly novel virus how quickly we could start to make a vaccine. And that might have been useful to us in our future research. Well, around the second week in January 2020, people around the world started uh, receiving uh, data from China, giving the whole of the sequence of the virus that then allowed them to make vaccines. So once you received that sequence, and I think that was around about the 11th of January, with your colleague, Professor Theresa Lamb, what were the next steps? How do you turn, knowing the genetics of the virus, the genetic code, how do you turn that into a vaccine? So you're right. The information came in about the 11th of January. Actually, there were two separate releases. First of all, there was one sequence from from one source. And then a little bit later, there are several more sequences from a different source. And it was necessary for Theresa Lamb to put all of that information together and identify the coding sequence for the spike protein. So everybody's very familiar with the spike protein now. It's the protein that sticks out from the surface of the virus. And that's the protein that we want to know about to use to make our vaccine, as all the and, vaccine, and 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 that's because that that um, spike protein is the one that binds onto human cells to allow the virus to then infect us. Yes. So if we can make a vaccine that will cause us to produce antibodies that stick to the spike protein, then it blocks the virus from being able to infect cells. That's what we call neutralizing antibodies. It neutralizes the ability of the virus to infect us, and that's obviously protective. Uh, the virus can't then do anything. So we want to know about the spike protein, which in coronaviruses is really the only major protein. So it was a very easy decision to make. So you can just look at the genetic code and it's immediately obvious which of the genes is encoding that protein that then would appear on the surface of the virus. Yes. So because we have the genetic sequence of other coronaviruses in the database, MERS coronavirus, SARS coronavirus, and there are also four other coronaviruses that regularly infect humans and give us a cold that we don't hear very much about. But genetically, they're very similar. So because we know what the spike protein of a MERS coronavirus looks like, we can find the closest thing to that in the complete genetic sequence of the novel coronavirus. And that tells us that that's the spike protein sequence. And then we don't actually need physically need anything. We just need that information. We need the written sequence of the genetic code for the spike protein and then we optimize that for making the vaccine we make some changes to it in ways that we've used before that we know are good for giving us um, a strong immune response and then we order the synthetic sequence synthetic dna sequence to be created so that we can then paste that synthetic dna sequence into our adenovirus vaccine vector and then we have the prototype for our vaccine So the sequence when it arrives, it just arrives in an email or how did you actually get it? It was present on databases, so it's possible to download the sequence from the databases. Okay, and then you work out how to insert that into the viral vector, which is this chimpanzee adenovirus that you'd already been working with. Now, how complicated is that process of incorporating the spike protein gene into the virus genes? Well, it's something we've done many times before. So we have a standard process for doing this. Um, What we have is a piece of DNA, quite a big piece of DNA that encodes all of the adenovirus vector apart from the vaccine antigen that we want to put into it. 
And then the vaccine antigen is, is a new piece. And we commission a company to synthesize that piece of DNA for us, ready to slot into our vaccine vector um, in, a, in a way that we've used many times before. So it does take some time to, to get that new piece of DNA created and checked and then put into our vaccine vector. But once we have that, from that piece of DNA, we can start to create the live virus. We put the DNA into a special cell line that um, has been modified so that the piece of DNA that's been taken out of the adenovirus, which we've removed to make it safe, um, that piece of DNA has been put into the cell line that we use for manufacturing. And what that does, it allows the virus to make lots of copies of itself inside that particular cell line because the adenovirus gene is present. But it, the adenovirus can't make copies of itself when it gets into humans after vaccination because that extra adenovirus gene isn't, isn't present in us. So you need this cell line, which are mammalian cells that allow you to then infect with the, the viral vector containing these new genes, including the spike protein gene, in order to make the first doses, which I guess initially are for animal studies to show that it's safe and that you can get an immune response. Yes, well, the very first viruses that we create, we have to separate them all out and check that they're correct, because sometimes there can be small errors in creating the new sequence or putting everything together. So the first thing to do is to um, isolate a few of them, read the genetic sequence, confirm that everything is as we expect it to be. And when we've got one or more that are completely correct, then we start amplifying it by using this special cell line to make more copies of the virus. And from there, we can take some of the virus and start to immunize animals to see, are we actually getting antibodies against the spike protein? And um, yes, we were. So while all this is going on, making the first doses and testing animals, where, where are we now? Are we still in January or are we in the middle of February? This is into February now. By the time we were starting to get the vaccine and testing it in animals, and obviously by this time news about the pandemic, or at that stage still future pandemic, was, was accumulating. And I was having to start to think about not just stopping once we've got some data from animals, but continuing with this project. And that means we need to work out how we're going to pay for the work uh, because I didn't have funds in place to make a new vaccine against novel coronavirus. We can do a little bit of work um, with some funding that was intended for vaccine research, uh, but that would only take us so far. And then we really needed to think about how we could access more money to move on to the next stage of the project, which would be manufacturing a batch of vaccines suitable to go into clinical trials. And you mentioned funding, but the, what, there was a biotech involved here called Vaxitech. So how was the relationship between Vaxitech and the University of Oxford and that first bit of development? How was that done together and, and why were they involved? Well, at the time, um, at the very beginning of January, when we were getting the genetic sequence, one of the scientists who works for Vaxitech, who used to work closely with me and Theresa Lamb, was also interested, um, just had an academic interest in the uh, progress of this outbreak and um, helped us design the sequence that we were going to use to put into our vaccine vector. After that, Vaxitech were very keen to support, but it became clear that this was going to be a university-led project and they, they didn't then have any further role in the project. 
Okay. So now we're into February. And as you said, then the next big challenge is manufacturing. And to think about manufacturing at small scale, which we do all the time for clinical trials, is very different from thinking about how you could make tens of millions or even billions of doses. So how was that face, that challenge of being able to not only make some doses, but upscale? And what what are the hurdles there? Well, I think first, it's important to say that it's very unusual for an academic group to be able to manufacture a vaccine to take into clinical trials. It's a very specialist activity. It's very closely controlled by the regulatory authorities, the MHRA in our case. The facilities are regularly inspected and licensed. They're separate facilities, it's a separate building. Um, it's not part of research labs, it's a separate team manufacturing these vaccines. And we're very lucky to have the clinical biomanufacturing facility that makes these vaccines that mean as academics, we can design vaccines and then initiate um, clinical testing with them. So, so that's a facility that sits here in the University of Oxford. That's right. It's on the same campus as the the, um, the labs where we did the design and later did the immunology testing. Uh, and we work very closely together. And we were able in the beginning of 2020 to say this is a really important project. We should stop the work that the biomanufacturing facility was actually doing at the time on a different project. We need to accelerate work on the coronavirus vaccine as quickly as possible. Um, and so they immediately switched to making the first batches of this vaccine for clinical trials. But they can only do it at small scale. Their role is not to make vaccines in millions or billions of doses. Their role is to make small batches for academic research and then to move on to a small batch of a different vaccine. So they're very flexible, they're very fast, but they can only make small amounts. So it must have been quite a challenge to persuade all of the academics who had their own projects that were in that manufacturing facility to stop so that everyone could focus on the coronavirus vaccine. Well, fortunately, those of us who who, who were working there are, all have an interest in outbreak pathogens. And so... Um, after some discussion, we reached the decision that this was the right thing to do. So as you said, then it was possible to make a relatively small number of doses, which are then at the quality that can be used in human trials. So at what point did you start thinking that actually we need to use other facilities that can make more doses? Well, as the outbreak was spreading, it was clear that we were going to be doing more than a small clinical study. Uh, so there were two things that we did. One was to reach out to other vaccine manufacturers that we'd worked with previously um, and knew could manufacture this type of vaccine for clinical trials. Um, we immediately started to work with um, a company called Advent in Italy, who then made a further batch of vaccine for us that was um, enabled us to get further in the clinical testing. But that was still about making fairly small batches in the grand scheme of things. Uh, it wasn't about being able to produce vaccines for general supply. And for that, we knew we were going to need a commercial partner. We need a company who is uh, a company that can make and sell vaccines and can take on the very large scale manufacturing and also other activities related to the eventual use of this vaccine. So preparing all of the detailed information that the regulators are going to need to license a vaccine, not just for a clinical trial, but for emergency use across the whole population. 
I guess then distribution of that vaccine, which is uh, a large challenge in its own right in maintaining cold chain across all countries all over the world. So then with those plans in place, I guess the for you, the, the first really important milestone was when the first results came back from those challenge studies in animals showing that that vaccine not only produced strong immune responses, but also protected the animals as well from exposure to the coronavirus. Yes, that's correct. And we were getting those results in real time. We were getting daily updates from the group at NIH in America who were conducting these trials. And in advance of getting the data, we'd agreed a format for reporting such that we could um, quickly share the data with the advisory board that were going to review all of it. So we did, did a lot of planning about rapid access to the data, make it immediately available so that we didn't delay clinical trials while we got a data package together and then gave people a, a week or two to look at it, which is probably the more normal timelines. We were we were doing this by advanced planning and then getting real-time data to the team that were going to be looking at it. So in late April 2020, 23rd of April, finally the vaccine was manufactured for those initial trials and you then handed over the vaccine with your colleague Kath Green and the manufacturing facility to the clinical team and then of course the clinical trials started. Now because of the environment we were in at that time in the middle of the first lockdown, we had very limited staff available here in Oxford to be on site. And so you couldn't be present when the first dose was given. That must have been very difficult. It was very frustrating. So when I've been involved in clinical trials being undertaken with a vaccine that I've designed and overseen the manufacturing of in the past, I have been to visit people who were thinking about volunteering for the trial when we've had information sessions in the vaccine centre to talk to them about what the vaccine was and how it worked and so on. And of course, we weren't doing any of that in 2020 because we were in lockdown and we were doing as much as possible um, using video calls or recorded videos. And then I wasn't able to go to the clinical centre when the trial started. Um, I was just, you know, receiving updates. It's not very far away from where my office was situated, but it was still frustrating to know that these um, important events were happening and I had to keep out of the way. But it must have been incredibly gratifying knowing that there's you know, a couple of thousand researchers around the world over the next eight months or so who are working on the vaccine that you've been so instrumental in developing. Yes. And just to be clear, I wasn't concerned that anybody needed me to be at the vaccine site. I knew that the team was extremely well prepared and would do a great job. Um, I would just have liked to be there to, to see it all happening. And the team really did do a great job. They had to put in place a lot of extra measures because we were now trying to do a clinical trial in lockdown. And we were doing a clinical trial that was going to be larger than we normally plan to undertake for this type of research. And then it got bigger and it moved around the UK. And I got involved in regular series of meetings about how we were going to supply the vaccine from Oxford to all the other trial sites around the UK, because we have a lot of regulations around the labelling and the shipping, the distribution of vaccines from one site to another site, which all had to be observed. And we had teams of delivery vans pulling up outside the manufacturing facility to take away these batches of vaccines to the different trial sites around the UK. So there was a lot of activity going on to get the vaccine to all the different trial sites so that we could expand the clinical trials. 
we lived through that together and I, I think that's certainly something which um, I hope we don't ever have to do again, organise those uh, enormous logistics. So the those clinical trials continued during 2020 with the first results announced at the end of November 2020. How did you first hear about um, those results and how did you feel? Where were you? I was at home on a Saturday evening when you, I think, sent me a text to say, could I call you? And uh, you previously told me not to expect anything until Sunday. So I was a bit surprised to be hearing from you on a Saturday. And then uh, I said, well, can you just tell me the number? And you said, no, no, it's it, we should talk. And it turned out to be a little bit more complicated than just one number relating to vaccine efficacy. That's absolutely right. So a complicated story with, depending on which subgroup you looked at, slightly different numbers for efficacy. But we subsequently have understood that that related to the dose interval where longer intervals seem to provide better immune responses and potentially better protection as well. So the vaccine went on to be licensed at the end of 2020 and some three and a half billion doses were distributed after that. And during that process, there was the most enormous media interest. And I'd just be interested to know for you how that felt, because a lot of the media interest was about the vaccine, but it was also about you and your role. Yeah, so it was quite um, a pressurised environment. Obviously, there was a lot of media interest. And I remember us as a team discussing uh, the press conferences that we were going to be doing because we, we wanted to provide clear and accurate information to the public at all times. Um, nothing was being hidden. We were reporting on what was happening and our interpretation of that. But it was often difficult because in any aspect of science, but also in, in vaccine development, we don't always have all of the answers straight away. So we were just talking about the somewhat complicated results around the efficacy. Um, and we knew those were the results, but we didn't understand why we were seeing different responses in the different subgroups at that time. Over the next few weeks, it became clear when we started to look at intervals between doses and different immune responses, and we began to understand it. And, and we now understand that very much better. But on the day that we first got the data, that, that wasn't clear. And so we were being asked, well, why have you got so many different results? And, and we had to say that we didn't yet understand why. And that applied, I think, to a number of things in the vaccine development and the various announcements that we had. Sometimes we would know some facts, but we didn't understand exactly why. And we would go on to investigate and it would take a little bit of time. And I don't think it would have been helpful for us all to have been speculating about the reason for those findings, we actually needed to, to get the data so that we could explain them. But we were often being pressed to explain things that we needed a little bit more time to explain. So as I said, there's obviously a lot of interest in the vaccine, but you've also had a lot of attention personally as well. Is that something you'd anticipated or prepared for? Or has that come as quite a surprise? Well, with my colleague, Kath Green, who is head of the biomanufacturing facility, I agreed to write a book about the vaccine development. This is uh, Vaxas. That's right. And we agreed to do that together. It, it seemed like a, quite a big job to be doing when we were in the middle of um, pandemic response, but we agreed that if we shared the responsibility, we'd be able to do it. And the reason that we agreed to write the book was to explain what was happening with this vaccine development. So the questions we kept hearing throughout the summer of 2020 were, 
about, well, what's in the vaccine? How can we trust it? We don't know what's in it. And all this is happening too quickly. It can't be right. It's happening too quickly. And we felt we wanted to explain what's in the vaccine because we could tell people exactly what's in the vaccine. I designed it and Kath made it. And all of the information in detail about that is in the book. And we also wanted to explain how the trials could go so quickly without missing out any steps. Um, because prior to this, the fastest development time for any vaccine from initiating the project to getting licensure was four years. And we were aiming to do this in under a year. But there were very good reasons why that was happening. We'd accelerated a lot of the phases, working very closely with the regulators. We missed out all the, the long gaps um, that often take place between different phases of the trial where people are just trying to raise money for the next part. We were able to go much more quickly this time. So we wanted to talk about that. And we also wanted to talk about the fact that as the people producing this vaccine, we're just ordinary people. We're not some other kind of being who's separated from normal society, you know, segregated in a in a big company with no contact with the real world. We had the same challenges that other people had in getting food because the supermarkets had big queues outside them and, and all the catering was closed down on campus. And trying to manage our teams of people where we sometimes had to ask people to, to move into different accommodations so that they would be safer. Uh, we didn't want our teams to be getting coronavirus infections at that time because if they'd started, if one person in the team had tested positive, we would have had to have the whole team quarantine and, and we really couldn't afford to do that. So we were struggling in the lockdown. We were struggling with the different difficulties through the pandemic, but at the same time, we were trying to provide a response for everybody. And so that's what we wanted to talk about, really, and that we talked about ourselves to a certain extent because we felt it was important to explain that we're ordinary people, but our job is to make vaccines to protect other people, and, and that's what we're doing. So ordinary people, but an, at, at an extraordinary time and, and with a, a really important um, role to play during it. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast and for all of your contributions to vaccinology and to the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Thank you. That was the Oxford Colloquy. Thanks for joining us in our podcast, bringing you the facts, stories and people behind the science. So you might be wondering, what is a colloquy? We've called this podcast series the Oxford Colloquy. Well, a colloquy is a discourse or a conversation, and hopefully you'll agree that that's what we've been having. 